Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I'm very excited to have the author of one of the most notorious releases of the year in horror fiction, Manhunt, by Gretchen Martin. It's Gretchen, Gretchen Felcher Martin, right? Felker. Felker, Felker Martin. Martin. Uh, gosh, I'm already off to a bad start. Uh, but uh manhunt is one of the biggest releases of the year it's causing a lot of controversy and we're going to get into it because i really love the book um but as we always do we're going to start off with your horror origin story how did you get into horror fiction before we get into the writing like just getting into horror how did that happen well when i was a kid every time that i would get scared by something i would want to experience it again and again I, I was not a roller coaster fan, but what I really loved was being alone in the woods at night and pushing myself to stay out as long as I could in the dark. Um, I, I grew up in a town of 600 people. That's almost the whole town area is old growth forest. Um, and what state was that? New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've yeah. driven through New Hampshire, spent a little time there, but yeah, I can see spooky. where, yeah, um, I can see that there would be spooky times in New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, I was a big fan of being scared by movies. I watched Alien and uh, Jurassic Park, that kitchen scene imprinted on me very young. Those were things that like I would hide behind the couch while they were on, but I would want to watch them again and again and again. Um those things were, it was just always where I wanted to be. Right. And the fun thing for horror fans, like growing up, is that there's no shortage of material or things to get into. Um, were you a reader early on? Um, or was it more movies with horror? I actually struggled to learn to read. Um, I was, I could not read pretty much at all until I was about 10. Mm. Um, but once I had it, I, I was immediately into Stephen King and anything else I could get my hands on. Right. Well, you know, uh, you're speaking with a, another with a writer with dyslexia. So, um, you know, I, I know we're, we're, we're uh, a lot of writers with are, there are a lot of writers with learning disabilities because I feel like that challenge that we have to overcome is a lot of times why we take it seriously. Right. Yeah, well, you know, it it has always been something that I attached a lot of emotional significance to. And once I got done crying from sheer frustration over it every single day of my life, all of that emotion was still there, but I was able to, to refashion my relationship to it. Right. And um, for for writing, when did writing come into this? Because I think for a lot of us, when we when we first get into horror fiction, we want to, we want to make, we so enjoy being scared that we want to make these things. We want to, we want to have that same impact on other people. Did you have 
like certain horror fiction that really spoke to you as far as wanting to be a creator? I don't know if there was not in not in my younger life, but certainly reading it at mm. the same time at the same age as the, the kids in the book. So when I was 11 or 12, that was really significant to me um, and has stuck with me through my whole life. I would say that if there's a book that made me want to write horror, it's probably Julia Graffer's Palm Ash, which is a, a, a mini zine about a Christian martyr being held prisoner as uh, the Romans prepare to feed him to lions. Interesting. I have never heard of that. Well, you know, uh, most times when I ask people you know, what was their real big inspiration? I usually know it. And that's one that I don't know, which is cool. I have to look into that. Um, but but you were a Stephen King reader. Um, were you into um, Clive Barker, or a little deeper, Poppy Bright, those kinds of things? or like? Uh, I only read Poppy Bright very recently. Um, I, I appreciate what he's doing, but it's not really my kind of horror. Mm -hmm. um, as a kid, I was very into Barker, especially like as a little closeted weirdo. Um, I was very into King. I loved Shirley Jackson. Uh, I was a, a huge, huge fan of the yellow wallpaper. <sighs> what else did I like as a kid? <laughs> well, I, mean, hey. I, loved, I loved Goosebumps. <laughs> And no, that that's really important transitional stuff. I think for a lot of us, um, yeah, yeah, I definitely see the the Barker influence, and especially in the characters, I see the King influence for sure. And we'll get into that when we get more into to the writing of Manhunt. But um, so, how did you get serious about writing? Did you start? Um, did you start with short stories, that kind of thing, or? Because I know your film criticism is where you, you've cut a lot of your teeth, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I got started as a professional writer. Um, I would say that I got serious about horror writing when I actually wound up befriending Julia Graffer, the author I just told you about a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I reviewed one of her books, Dark Age, and we struck up a friendship afterwards and have become really close. And we would talk a lot about self-publishing and independent horror and just sort of how important we felt it was to experience discomfort and to intentionally inflict discomfort on yourself so that you could understand what was causing it and what it meant or didn't mean. Um, and so I decided that I, I wanted to do this, you know, is this, this person I really admired doing this work that I loved that resonated really deeply with me. And that was when I wrote my first novella, No End Will Be Found, which is about a young woman who is accused of witchcraft during the witch craze in Würzburg, Germany in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. Wow, that sounds cool. Now, that had to be a lot of research for a first piece, right? Yeah, it was a it was a ton of work. Um, I just slogged my way through the entire Malleus Maleficarum, which is like a, a witch finder's handbook from the period. 
Um, I read a bunch of old court transcripts, which are just both the bleakest and the most boring things you can imagine. Right. Um, my, my historical horror has always been like very intensely researched, although I don't, I don't care terribly about historical accuracy, you know, whether or not everyone is, is wearing the right kind of lederhosen or whatever. That stuff doesn't matter to me because no matter how hard you try and produce a simulacra of the past, it's, it's going to be so immediately and obviously wrong to anyone who has seen the real thing. You know, you, you take someone from the time period and you show them, a, say, a tavern that you've labored to, to reproduce in perfect historical detail. And right away, they'll be like, well, this is fucked up. Where's the guy who polishes everyone's hat? Yeah. There's, right. there's all these things that just disappear down the well of time that we'll never get back. Yeah, we were just having that problem with, we were watching a show from the 80s a couple of weeks ago. And like, young writers always have people saying like, you got this and stuff like that, that nobody said back then you know right. but are commonplace now and so if you live there you know of course younger writers they, they don't know the people that weren't saying that yet <laughs> so yeah i i like what you're saying about historical accuracy and um i i sorry to say i haven't read your historical horror yet um I, i'm excited to dive into that because i think um i i do really love historically themed horror fiction it's funny i like it more in um prose than i do in film like a lot of times i, I get bored by it in film but um so what's the do you have a big interest in history is that where that came from or yeah actually um in college i studied the infrastructural effects of the black plague on england um, wow that must yeah. have been fascinating it's incredibly fascinating just like the enormous logistical challenge of having in many cases more bodies than living people is so overwhelming. It completely changed the way the whole country operated. And there's also nothing as chilling as taking these transcripts from, from clerks in the 14th century and literally seeing the handwriting change from line to line because they are dying. Oh, wow. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, and I bet that, well, we'll get back to this, but I bet that had an influence you, on, on this pandemic novel that, that, that you just released. Certainly, yeah. In ways that a lot of people probably would not catch. But um, but knowing that that's something that you've researched, now I can see it. Um, and, you know, that historical um, perspective really gives you a good idea for how to look at because um, I think what's what's going to be underrated in the controversy of all this, because everyone's going to be focusing on J.K. Rowling burning or whatever, but if they really look at what's going on in this novel, is it, you can see that touch of of that historical researcher in you um, for for setting this this all up, and we'll drill down on that in a bit. But um, and I admit I've. Manhunt is the first of your work that I've read. Um, I since this book got announced, I've been following you on Twitter, and I I really enjoy following you on Twitter. And I was really Thank excited you. for this book. And I'm going to dig deeper because once I find an author I like, I'm I'm going to read everything eventually. Um, but Manhunt is very specifically is is a really interesting shot across the bow to really announce yourself 
to the world. We know that you've done other work and then you've done other things and you've done the film criticism, but, but this is the type of book that makes people think like, this is the beginning, right? So it's a really, yeah, it's, it's my mainstream debut. It's your mainstream debut. And, and believe me, as somebody who publishes indie, like, you know, I'm not poo-pooing that, but it, it, it's a major thing. So, um, thinking about like having a book that's going to be such a, um, awesome middle finger, but a middle finger, um, you had to, to think about that before submitting did you did you submit based on um did you had you already written this before you started before you submitted it to tour uh i actually didn't submit it to tour um interesting my agent connor goldsmith saw an excerpt that i had posted online mm. um on my own patreon and he got in touch with me and asked me if i was interested in representation um so i agreed to sign with him and then he sold it to tour and he actually sold it on spec which was a uh, very exciting um I, th I think there were only about ten thousand words written at that point wow see that's what i was wondering because i had a feeling that um you know or, or i was just wondering if they they were totally on board with this concept before you even like had totally completed it right yeah they were that is awesome yeah, yeah. I, I have a, a really fantastic, um, fantastic agent, Kelly O'Connor Lonesome. Mm. And so or, um, the, uh, editor, sorry. Yeah. And um, so that's cool because it seems like you got a lot of people in your corner for, for, for this book from the beginning. And that, yeah. that that's meaningful when you're doing a book like this. So you had to know, even when you're putting out on your Patreon, that this, this first chapter, that, um, that, you're stepping into uh, pretty controversial waters as far as, you know, a, a horror fiction novel now. Um, so, so you, you knew what you were doing, right? With this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which is cool. Um, so let's talk about the tip tree, the sleeping beauties, the why the last man of it all, because I think it's important um, as a genre, the, the gender specific, John, one of the reasons why I was so excited about this book is because I was already annoyed with this genre and wanted a middle finger uh, book in that regard because as much as I liked Why the Last Man when I read it however long ago when it came out, and I love The Screwfice Solution, and I'm a huge Alice Sheldon fan in general. Me too. Um, but, um, and... You know, I love Stephen King as as a person more than a, than a writer, actually. But Sleeping Beauties was awful uh, for a couple things, and yes. specifically the gender roles in it were ridiculously terrible and old. -fashioned. I thought it was a very weak book. Yeah, and um, so I felt like, in a lot of ways, this book, because we had these gender specific novels and tip tree was doing this you know in the 70s so that was a long time ago and our and our idea and understanding of gender spectrum was just not there yet mm -hmm. and so it's understandable but when these books are coming out now that's different and so you obviously were like wanting to play with the idea of the gender apocalypse <laughs> 
in in this in, from a trans perspective and how long ago did the seed of this idea come and 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 how did it develop i believe that's a it lot was of talking in. i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's okay that's okay i think i started work on it and had the idea for it in 2019 after my good friend alice store who's who's also trans read the screw fly solution out loud to me while we were just hanging out um, Alice really likes to read aloud and I was it had been so long since I had had read it and I was so struck not just by how good it is and how insightful it is but by how much goes unsaid in this world and unanswered yes. yeah. and I don't think that's a weakness of the story the story is about something very specific and it's extremely thoughtful about what it is what it is about um, but there's all this undiscovered territory in the back of it, all of this, this world of people who are not suburbanites and who do not fit neatly into the, the two molds that society talks about having. Um, and I, I felt really strongly that this was something that I could do, that I could, I could pull something really interesting out of that negative space. Right. And you certainly did. Thank you. Now, as far as, um, you know, one of the things that makes Tiptree, um, I think, different and Scrify Solution, Alice Sheldon, that whole thing is just what an interesting life she led and how many struggles she had. So that bleeds through the work. And um, I think one of the things that you know, is, is really great about um, Manhunt as well as is, is that, you know, the, there's a very personal nature to it. And, you know, as far as that makes the characters, which who are obviously, you know, um, there's a very diverse cast of characters in Manhunt, but they, th their struggles feel deeper, right? And um, I, and it's funny because that you mentioned that because I think one of the things that makes it similar to Screwfy Solution is is less the gender like storylines obviously, but a lot of it is that that the characters have such deep um, meaning and metaphor to what's going on of the whole. Okay, so that's one of the things that I think is the connection. So tell me about um, developing the characters. How early was that in the process? Uh, that was pretty immediate. Um, I would say I had the whole main cast within the first few days. Mm -hmm. And really there are reflections of myself, there are reflections of the people around me, people that I love and who piss me off and who I find charming and obnoxious and of course these are all the same people and all these categories overlap um what I really wanted to do was was to do justice to queer people and a whole world and community of queer people as complicated and self-contradictory and occasionally deeply deeply ugly and transcendentally loving and brave that's awesome. And we'll get back. We'll break down character by character a little bit later, but I want to talk about 
So then you write this novel, you know, you had the support of, of editors and agents that they, they had bought on spec this, but you had to sit down and then, and deliver. Were you nervous once you started getting into like, um, you know, actually doing it like, because I could see where that might be, you know, cause it's one thing that to buy the pitch and then it's another thing to write this kind of story. Right. Well, part of me was nervous. You know, I, I had never worked with an editor before. I had never had representation before. And it was intimidating to be on this larger stage with a larger prospective audience who would see this thing that I was doing that I knew many people would find extremely objectionable. Mm -hmm. um, and that is an experience I had had on a small scale with my own self-published work, which is very dark and deals with a lot of very, very ugly things. People get mad. They do not have the necessary art literacy and social skills to look at something, think that's not really for me and move on with their life. Right. Um, I, I think I was more scared of that than I was of anything with my publisher because if my publisher told me that they weren't gonna publish it, I would just quit. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's obvious that they supported you yeah. on this and that they had to know there were going to be battle lines and they were they had to have been ready to back you. Oh, my like, agent and I got on the phone with a couple of people over at Nightfire when they said that they wanted to hire me. And we said, listen, the minute you announce this, there are going to be people, the craziest people you've ever met screaming at you about it. And it probably will not ever fully calm down and it might get a lot worse. Um, and that that bore out, you know, the, the moment that Tor announced there were people calling them, trying to get me fired. Mm. Um, I've, I've experienced uh, public harassment and mobbing for years and years now. It's nothing new. Right. Well, that's too bad. And, uh, I hate it, but at the same time, um, I really appreciate that your publisher stuck by you. Now, do you think, and this is an interesting question, do you think it was worse when the announcement was made or when the book actually came out? Because that, to me, I'm curious about. Well, I think almost no one who is enraged by the book has has read it or will read it. Right. Um, just really a, a tiny handful of people who are, are sort of repulsed by me on an identitarian level or ideological have, have picked it up at all. But it has been worse since it's come out and since the book's profile has grown. Mm. Um, recently, it has been an international tabloid sensation, uh, which was extremely irritating and exhausting. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, like I've had a couple of my books published by Deadite. And when Jeff, <laughs> Jeff would always sit and say to me behind the scenes, he's like, if you're really lucky, people will hate your book and want to destroy you. <laughs> right. And right. then he would always talk about how like he would, he, he was looking for controversy with a lot of things. And 
I kept telling him like, well, there's a be careful what you wish for thing because there's the it helps the book sales, but at the same time you got to deal with it as a human being, right? And and um, so as somebody who's supportive of the book and uh, thinks those assholes should go fuck off, um, you know, I see both sides because there's a part of me that's like every book should get somebody to hate it so much that they increase the bandwidth you know that's a fun thing but at the same time i'm sorry you have to deal with that as as a human being because i know specifically because of what your book is about the people who hate it are particularly gross (laughs) right thank you and it's certainly some of it is unpleasant i've gotten very good at dealing with it over the years and i'm i'm at a point in my life where really the worst it gets is just that i'm tired of it right right yeah, so I, I really that. appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, as a thick skinned person myself, I, I, I understand that. I just, um, I, I think it's too bad that, you know, you have to deal with it. But that being said, you're right. It has turned into an international tabloid thing. And that's an unfortunate thing because most of the tabloid headlines are like the, you know, JK Rowling burns alive in the book. And it's like, seriously, like a couple lines that are pretty hilarious. Man, I wish I'd burned her alive in the book at this point. I might as well have. Yeah, because, yeah, you didn't really do that. Um, You know, it's funny because in in a lot of these other, you know, in the road, J.K. Rowling died, right? But just because it wasn't talked about, you know, and at this, you know, so the controversy is silly, but at the same time, we're 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 dealing with it here, mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate. But um, let's focus on the book, though. Let's let's Sounds not talk about me. that any, <laughs> anymore. Now, I admit, uh, when you said earlier you were talking about Poppy Bright and you said not my kind of horror, that kind of thing. Usually, extreme horror is not my kind of horror either, right? Um, I am not. It, you know, it's funny to say this as somebody who's been nominated for a splatterpunk award and I have, but I'm not a big extreme horror person. Like I really don't like reading Ed Lee, for example, because I feel like even when he tries to be feminist, it comes off sounding terrible. And, <laughs> um, and it's, I know he's like a nice guy and everything. I'm just saying like how it comes off to me. And so when you refer to yourself in the acknowledgements as writing gross splatter core, I thought to myself, you know, if somebody had told me, read this book, it's gross splatter, splatter core, I would have been like, yeah, no, thanks. That's not my kind of thing. Right. And extreme horror, I had to know, has a history of being very political. And, you know, I've had several books published with Deadite. So, like, I have a connection to extreme horror, but it's just not my thing generally. So what's really interesting to me is that that doesn't matter to me in the, my reading of this book. I enjoyed it. Um, and it's cause it's not to say that every extreme horror doesn't work for me, but where do you, I wouldn't have classified this book as gross splatter core. I mean, there's a few really gory parts, but where, where does that name connect to your work in your mind? Or were you just basically taking the piss out of yourself? <laughs> Well, uh, my, my agent is the one who handed me the splatterpunk um, label. It's, it's not something I had ever really thought about. What oh, you're I'm getting ex- nominated for that award. 
Gretchen, <laughs> let me tell you. If you well, don't win it, I'd be really shocked, but you're definitely getting nominated. That's, so. that's very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I, I, it wasn't really a, a term I was terribly familiar with. I mean, I'd heard it. I knew what it mean, meant, but it's not something I think about when I think about what movie I want to sit down and watch or what book I want to read. I do like extreme horror. I'm, I'm a big fan of Ken Russell's The Devils, of Andrzej Zulowski's uh, Possession, of things like Cello and The Night Porter. Um, I love stories about human emotion at the outer limits of extremity and and for the body too. I'm, I'm a big fan of Wolf Creek and The Loved Ones and, and movies that a lot of people would call torture porn. Um, but well, I did. Yeah, you're mentioning stuff that I like, so it's funny because, you know, I say that, but it's just it's just a taste thing, I guess. But mm -hmm. you know, I, I do think that, of course, there are many entries in these genres that are are totally tasteless and hollow, and I have no interest in them. But I think that's true for basically everything. True, true. true. Um, and I'm I'm just as big a fan of the haunting of Hill House and the bloody chamber and all of these other sort of more restrained and traditional modes of telling horror stories. Um, but as, as to where I see myself and Manhunt in relation to that, I think that Manhunt is a, a little punk as a book. Um, it's, it's probably the least disgusting thing I've ever written. Interesting. I, I may have pulled back on the throttle a little bit unconsciously. Um, my historical fiction is much, much grosser. It involves like a lot of torture. Um, I, I would say that I don't object to Manhunt being called Splatterpunk. Mm. It's, it's certainly got kind of that, uh, what's that, that genre in Japanese movies, girl boss, I think is the, the rough translation of, you know, women with bandages across the bridge of their noses, beating people up with baseball bats. It's got a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, um, it's a great, and I say this with all love and respect, it's a great middle finger novel because I you. love middle finger novels. Um, and I think when an author can, can really just let it fly and do it in a really classy way. It's great. And so it's funny that you said, I kind of wish I had burned JK Rowling alive because you're, you're, you're getting credit for doing it, whether you liked it or not. Right. right. And, uh, but what about living up to the buzz? Because you were still working on finishing the book when all the, the, anger and the vitriol and the oh holy fuck i can't wait for this from the people who knew who were going to be like me who were just like holy shit that's going to be incredible like um like you had to to kind of live up to that was so so was that was that a concern when you were writing it or did you did you know you had it i mean i it's write fine for to me. know that <laughs> I, I write for me and sometimes part of that is is talking to certain subsets of my readership, but ultimately it's, it's just not something I worried about. If people liked it 
they liked it. And if they didn't, that's not my problem. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that, you know. But it had to be interesting because, I mean, they were talking, a lot of people were talking about this book, you know, before it came out, especially with the cover. Yeah, the buzz was was really lovely to have. Um, and I'm thrilled to have apparently met people's expectations. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I think for most readers who who were looking forward to it, who are not in the hater crowd, uh, we're all feeling that way. Now, what about the cover? Like, uh, what was the discussion with the cover? Was that something that was brought to you or did you have that idea from the beginning? Um, no, my ideas for the cover were very different. Um, the design team at Tor came up with this and it's, it's amazing. I'm so glad we went with it. And they were able to get Sarah Sitkin, who did a lot of the monster design for Channel Zero, to come over and, and sculpt this for us. And just like, I've never shown anyone this cover without seeing them flinch or bare their teeth, or it's just, it's such a great little Rorschach test. Well, I'll tell you a story of, of when I was reading it. I had the book on, on my desk at work and um and it was after the kids left but uh because i'm a teacher for my day job and one of the other teachers who's an absolute bro dog total normal guy flipped out when he saw the cover had to take a picture of it and was like not he's not a reader and he was like um oh, dude you gotta tell me about this book what the hell's going on with this book and um it was so funny because he's not a reader and he's like, man, I hope they make a movie of it someday. And I'm like, why don't you just learn to read a book, you know? But it was hilarious because he, I, I don't know what he did with it, but he took a picture of it, you know, because he was that's just, so funny. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just, I think this cover is so evocative and it, and it just works at so many levels and it just, uh, you know, yeah, the design is great. Yeah. Thank you. So and it was sculpted, huh? It was like yeah, yeah. It's a it's a photograph of a sculpture. That is so cool. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> so um, when you so the controversial part of the controversial thing or the the thing, and I admit uh, this was this was the thing that uh, that I had written you about was was the the eating of the balls because the eating of the testicles was a thing that I felt like I was trying to read too much into it, and I was like. I didn't realize that they produced estrogen, which is like, they do. Yeah. Yep. Which is, I assumed that's what was going on. But the first person I mentioned to, when somebody asked me what I was reading, they questioned me on that. And they were ones that screwed me up and they were like, I don't think testicles create estrogen. And I was like, yeah, I think they do. I think that's why they're eating them. And then that's why I ended up writing you because I let somebody question that for me. But uh, what's interesting is that, um, and this is an effect of your book, is that I had a, I had a whole conversation at work with somebody about eating testicles. <laughs> Nothing. And whether there was estrogen or not in testicles because of your book. So, conversation starter. But uh, where did this part of the story come from? Was that early on? Was that in that first sample chapter? That yeah. It was. Um, it was one of the first things that I thought of. I thought it was just really nasty and icky and would get readers immediately invested. Right. 
Well, and I've said, and I, I was clear about this in my review, the the part where I believe it's Fran, um, I could be getting the characters mixed up, but um, the, the, the paragraph, I was so close, she thought miserably, sitting down to a candlelight dinner, to candlelight dining room table, where on her plate an eight-inch cock sat crisp up beautifully under a thin drizzle of vinaigrette reduction. I was so close to being a girl. That, to me, I always look for, in books, lines or parts that are mission statements. And for me, that line was, if you get the balance of emotion and viscera in one paragraph, and you can handle it, this book is going to work for you, right? And so to me, that that line was, and I do this with every author I have on, is talk about the mission statement. To me, that was... As a reader, that was what I took as a mission statement. How do you feel about that? I think it's a perfectly valid way to read that line. Um, you know, that's that's Fran grappling with the way that the world has changed and hasn't changed for her. It's sort of by extension the the long knockdown, drag out fight that almost all trans women go through with their appearance and their relationship to surgery and the entire sort of nebulous process of transition. And I, I do think that is at the heart of the book. It's like what, what is this experience and what does it mean and what doesn't it mean and how does it change you and how doesn't it? And it's so important because if a gender specific pandemic happens at this time, mm -hmm. it would be particularly heartbreaking for a person at that space in their life at that time. And it says so much about the character and sets the stage for not, not just the, the violence of the story, but the emotions of the story and the characters. And we'll, we'll get more into that soon here with characters, but I want to talk about the turfs as villains because, um, and for people who don't know, TERF stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminists. And, um, you know, a really important stage for me in my writing, and, you know, speaking of somebody who's like a radical environmentalist and a militant vegan, and I wrote a story about that originally when I started it was an anti-logging story with a character in a tree sit. And it was really important to me evolution of my writing because I made a, a character out of one of the loggers and really got into the head of the people on the other side of the tree sit, which, you know, I had organized tree sits in my life. I had fought against them, but, but actually writing the character who was a logger made my fiction so much richer and deeper because even though I didn't agree with his position, this character, I had to think about it a lot. So I think a lot about romance, Ramona as a character and the turfs here because I'll admit when I was going into this book one thing I was a little worried about was will the turfs be cartoony to the point where you know no one can understand their position like obviously we want they are the villains of the, of the, the piece they are they're very clearly the villains but Ramona is mm -hmm. a character that I feel like I understood and I thought that added so much dimension to Manhunt. Um, and I think some people will overlook that. But Ramona was a very important character. Can you tell me about writing this character? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think that Ramona is the linchpin of the novel in a lot of ways. She deepens and complicates the conflict around pretty much every major plot point in the book. And I would say that her emotional journey is probably the most fraught of anyone's. Um, not, you know, not to say that it's, it's the hardest or the most unique or whatever, but just that it's incredibly complicated. Um, and by contrast with the things she's going through, I think Ramona is someone who is reflexively, almost defensively simple about how she interacts with the world around her. She plays stupid a lot. She's very sort of what I would call morally lazy in that she sort of takes the shape of whatever society is around her. Um, and she does things mostly because they're easy or expected of her. Yeah. Now, when you, when critics of this book from the turf community, do they, I, I, that's one thing where I say to myself, I think there's no way they've actually read the book because I think you gave them more of a voice than, than most people would ever expect, you know, on the outside. And I think, like I said, I think that it's important to, 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 because a lot of people like, you know, sometimes with conversation is one of the reasons why I brought up that story about the logger is like, you can't begin to have dialogue if people can't start to understand where each other's coming from, even if you vehemently disagree. Right. Well, I think that you do have a point. I would like to state for the record, I have no interest whatsoever in facilitating or approaching any dialogue with TERFs. They're exterminationists. Totally understood. And I don't believe we have anything to gain from any political approach except shaming them out of existence. Sure. But at the same time, Ramona is a character that has depth. And yeah, and, and yeah. dramatically that's very important. Sure. In, gotcha. in the, the construction of a story. I've said this before. I think if anything, I, I was perhaps too generous to the TERFs in this book. Because when you listen to real TERFs, they're insane. Their brains have been completely parboiled. I have never heard or read anything made by one of them that approached coherence. Yeah. And not only that, but it's all they do. Just day in and day out, spending a whole life hating people who don't want anything to do with you and are never going to matter to your life. Right. Well, um, and, and I think, if anything, that's one of the reasons why I think that a lot of these critics are not, they're not actually checking out the book. They're not actually seeing what you're, what, what you're saying, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I've certainly seen many, many criticisms from people who very obviously haven't read the book. I have seen some even more disturbing criticisms from people who have and who identify strongly with Ramona and with the women around her um, and, and say that I've created this narrative that twists the fact that these are the heroes. That is crazy. <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild to see actually written out directly. What? Oh, man. Well, of course. I mean, you can't control that. A lot of times, you know, you can write, you know, a, there, you know, Nazis all like take books all the time that shouldn't. shouldn't Nazis be. love American History X. Yeah. 
Exactly. Um, as I always say when this comes up, uh, there are people who went to war because of Full Metal Jacket. You cannot make idiot-proof fiction. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I had that situation with um, I, my um, um, Boot Boys of the Wolf Reich, which is anti-Nazi skinheads and werewolves. And, and I, you know, randomly, I, I had at one point a, a guy who was a Nazi skinhead write me and tell me that he really liked the book. And I was like, how on earth did you like this book? <laughs> you know, like beyond the fact that I'm Jewish and that all the, the heroes are clearly the anti-racists, you know, it's just flabbergasting when that foolish. Happens. Yeah. It's foolish. It's weird. And okay. So, but I do, I, I do want to say that um, I really appreciated how Ramona was written as a character and in just how, um, because I think a lot of times too, people forget that villains um, have to be the heroes of their own story, whether you like right. it or these not. Right, are, these are people. Yeah, yeah, and it makes the book richer and more, like if characters are too mustache twirly, it, it gets... It, yeah, that's, that's not something I'm very interested in writing. Um, I'm most interested in why people who are understandable who are like us in many ways would do something that is so unbelievably horrific and of course we can see examples of the same thing happening all around us every day we are all surrounded by people who are police officers who volunteer for the united states army who participated without complaint in the banning and detention of like Arab and Syrian and Lebanese travelers to and from America who work in border camps where people are kept in detention under inhumane conditions indefinitely. Prison guards. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. The whole society, the entirety of American society is built on this bedrock of chattel slavery and then fascism. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and you know if we don't understand these characters wh- what are we doing but um so speaking of the characters when i sat down to write these questions for the interview um and i was you know i like to get nitty-gritty about like the the writing uh, of these books and get underneath the hood and um it's funny because the first thing i did was write down the characters names and so, you know, because I wanted to talk about them based on characters, because one thing I think is underrated about this book that uh, was very clear to me from the beginning or, or from reading it is that the characters are so fundamental to, to how the book, um, how, how the book, how my reaction to the book and what I felt about it. Fran, Beth and Robbie are, and I want to talk about each, how each one was developed because I think that says so much about where the book goes. Um, I think it's a very character-driven book, and not very many people are going to say that, uh, but I am. I think it's a very character-driven book. Uh, I agree with you. Yeah. And I'm, now, I don't like plot. <laughs> okay. Well, look, I am a plotter, but, and I will admit that, but in this particular book, and I, but I not for me, I am, 
for other people, like I can read everything. Now, Fran, let's talk about Fran. Where does this character come from? And, and how does she relate to the overall theme of the book, in your opinion? Well, Fran, Fran comes from a diverse number of sources. Uh, one is the many slender, beautiful, and fairly easy to pass trans women who are in my life or who are tangential to my life and who behave in a variety of ways ranging from kind of oblivious and lacking in solidarity to really true blue wonderful women um she's also drawn from the many 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 jewish friends that i have had um and still have and treasure it's 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 very important to me to talk about judaism in american fiction to try to honor the things that Jewish people and Jewish families have given to me. Um, and I, I think it's a pretty ineradicable part of Fran. And it's also connected to her deep ambivalence about who she is and where she wants to fall along cultural lines. Because of course she has this enormous, extremely understandable desire to go through extensive body modification, but at the same time, the culture that she comes from considers this, this deeply taboo. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's the source of a lot of her sort of hesitation and sometimes her unwillingness to look at hard things head on. Mm -hmm. She's a great character and Thank really you. anchors the book in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, it's interesting, um, as somebody who, uh, you know, I'm Jewish culturally, I didn't, I don't really practice, but, um, I really appreciate your words on that. Um, my next novel next year is the most Jewish thing I'll ever, ever write. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> it's coming from Clash Books next year, but, uh, and I can't talk about the title yet. I'm really excited about it. Um. But anyways, uh, so the, the thing about, okay, so Beth as a character, um, now you, you developed a lot of these characters in your head a long time before you started writing, or did they kind of come as you were writing them? And they and popped out as I was writing. Okay. Um, so I, I don't have, uh, so Beth is, is much more based on trans women who, look like me and who live like me. And Beth comes from where I come from. She's a, a fairly poor kid from New Hampshire. Um, she's from a, a home that is intermittently difficult in different ways. And she's very accustomed to being kicked around and singled out. Um, and what I, what I wanted to do with Beth is, is take this sort of foil to Fran and, and vice versa, that you have this woman who has all the same feelings that Fran does, but cannot escape her body, has no, no road to resolving these issues aside from changing the way that she thinks about herself. And even that will not change the way the world treats her. 
it won't make her safer to be confident or whatever. Um, and she's also paradoxically at various points in the novel valued for her more traditionally masculine traits, for her ability to use a bow, for the fact that she has a penis. Um, and so Beth is, is forced to live in this sort of dual role that she does not want to occupy. She's not never allowed to be delicate or feminine. Well, and it's very specific to the, to the novel that like the situation she's put in where her attributes and her traits, you know, so that's one of the reasons why Beth is such an important character to the book, because unlike Fran, who, you know, could more or less, I guess, I don't know what the past, right? <laughs> and then Beth has a situation where all of a sudden she's valued for, for the bow and, and for the penis and the stuff like that. And then it becomes like something that, and first of all, those are all moments too that, you know, starting the book, um, you know, I wasn't expecting or, or, you know, and were really poignant and important um, because um, they were aspects of her character that, that, um, you know, really makes the reader think and think about her. Beth and her position and what she has to go through. So I think um, part of the heart and soul of the book as well. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now the same case, Robbie is a character that, um, you know, when Robbie's introduced and he's, you know, he's got a very specific role in the book too, because, um, you know, at the same time is, um, a survivor um, in a world where most men are feral, you know, and then has the contradictory moments with, with um, his cycle and those kinds of things, which are really important parts to the book as well. Um, can you tell me about developing Robbie as a character? Because I think Robbie is so, so very important to this book. Thank you. I think so too. Um I would say that Robbie has probably the most straightforward genesis of any of these characters in that he is a synthesis of the many trans men that I know and love who have been my friends and my family and my lovers for as long as I've been out. And I wanted those people who matter so much to me to see themselves in this world and to see themselves as this heroic figure who even though he struggles to connect to others and he struggles to feel like he deserves to exist in the world he has this incredible reservoir of, of bravery inside him mm. and also has a real moral compass right and he, he's uh He's also one of the clearest sighted people in the novel. It's Robbie who sort of intuits how Beth wants to be treated. It's Robbie who sees what's going on in the bunker when Fran refuses to. Mm, yeah. Well, it, Robbie, um, the bravery aspect of robbery, of Robbie, robbery, <laughs> Robbie, uh, uh, 
is a really important characteristic too, because once the communities start kind of getting challenged and, and, and those things, the dynamic between Robbie and uh, especially Beth, I, I think, you know, um, really plays a huge role for how things move forward. It's, it's really, Robbie's so important to the, to the story as well, you know? Um, so uh, I have two more things and then, um, I know you have a, a, a thing to get to tonight and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, um, this has been awesome. I, I really appreciate it also. And you kind of mentioned this already, but the sexuality in the book, um, is, is really important for visibility and normalizing, um, you know, the spectrum of sexuality that exists in it is really, really important. I think for me as a per, as cisgendered, you know, pretty normal, um, average guy, for me, the first time I read about gay sex was in a horror novel, right? And the first time that I got the chance to, to kind of look at it and be like, okay, that's normal and that's fine. Like, you know, the first time I read in a Poppy Bright book, you know, what was, ha you know, was happening then said to myself, okay, I'm okay with that, you know, and then moved on. I think in a lot of ways, I think for a lot of horror readers who are mainstream horror readers, this is going to be their first experience with tra transsexuality. So I think you probably felt a lot of responsibility for that, <laughs> towards that in, in the writing of this book, I, I'm assuming, right? I actually felt none at all. None? Um, you just, it was just natural for you and you just did it. The sex in this book is is for me and it's for trans people. And if straight and cis people take something away from it, that's great. But yeah. I don't care. <laughs> you don't care. Okay. Yeah. And that's great. That's fine too. But I mean, I have to look at it as a cisgender reader, right? You know, and, and um, so. And I'm, I'm thrilled that it, it meant something to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, because it, it's something that, um, you know, I was excited. My first thought was kudos to tour that they didn't make you tone any of that down or do any of that. And, and, and I just, I really appreciated that. So, and I think, whereas you just wrote for yourself and you don't care, I, I do think it's going to be important visibility for, for readers who are. That would be lovely if it were. Yeah. Or it should be. And I know there, there's going to be haters and there's going to be assholes, but you know, fuck them. So, uh, <laughs> the other thing too, is the communities in the book are really important. Like the various different communities that come up after this gender apocalypse. And that's the last thing that I really wanted to talk about because a huge theme for me in reading Manhunt was, um, I, I had the thought to myself when I was, cause I recently reread Screwfly Solution because I recently reread Tiptree's collection and mm -hmm. reviewed it like a year and a half ago. And one of the things that I was reminded of when I read that is, is that she had an eye for that communities would totally change and totally be different if women were in charge and doing things. And so going into Manhunt, I, I thought, how is she going to deal with these communities? Because communities are going to pop up in different ways because I think women tend to be a little bit more collective. But 
there's also the challenges of when you try to do that in the real world, right? right. So, um, and get into personalities. And then, so how did you approach these communities and writing this book? Because I think that's so important to this book. Well, I approached them from a couple of angles. First, you have the TERFs who have this sort of military society that's based all around seniority and sort of ideological rigidity, um, but that has a very sort of hoorah Marine side, you know, they're, they're getting drunk and getting tattoos together and celebrating de successful death squad trips. Um, and for that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've read Kershaw. I'm pretty well-versed in what it's like when Nazis hang out with each other. And I've also done a lot of research on TERFs and on all of the various groups that have come together to form that sort of amorphous, uh, politically incoherent blob in the modern era, mm. um, which is, of course, everything from actual radical feminists to, like, paranoid anti-vaxxer stay-at-home moms and even the rabid evangelical right wing. And they should realize that what you're depicting is how the trans community feels about them, regardless of what their intentions are. You know, the, the metaphor in the novel is is how the community feels about them. And they should they should take a second to recognize that, at least in my opinion. Well, I, I won't hold my breath for that. Yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, yes, I, I hear you on that. <laughs> But so the communities, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. yeah. No, no worries. Um, I would say the, the other biggest thing, last night, uh, my sweetheart and I were watching The Boys in the Band, uh, the very famous sort of first American mainstream gay movie, um, which was adapted from a, a play of the same name. And it's about this horrible birthday party thrown by one New York gay guy for his boyfriend in the, the 70s. And it's just, just before AIDS. And it's these people who are only together because they have the same sexuality, because they're rejects and no one else will have them. And they've been together for so long and they've been in so many different relationship configurations and seen so many stages in one another's lives they all know each other so well and it's it's beautiful but it's also a total nightmare <laughs> right um and that's that's certainly a part of manhunt you know even right down to the relationship between fran and beth who are lifelong friends who are very different people and when they had the option stopped being friends mm. And now circumstances force them back together because there's safety in numbers. And right. so you have these very complicated social dynamics full of people who are together because they can't be anywhere else because the world isn't safe for them. And that can be a beautiful thing and it can be a really fucking irritating thing. <laughs> right. And then I would say that the, the third leg of the the tripod of communities within the books is the bunker and the kind of suburban complacency that it represents where you 
just offload any difficult decision to people who are overinvested with power and authority and who can take the moral weight of all these rotten ways of keeping the world running away from you so that you can pretend that there's nothing you can do about it. Like, oh, they're exploiting defenseless workers and there's they're not letting brown people in and everything is so awful and the supplies of medicine and food and water are all rigidly controlled. But it's not my fault because I'm not in charge. Mm. So to my mind, the bunker is really liberalism. It's sort of electoral politics and, and modern America. Yeah, that's great. No, no. And, and I think it, it, it works. You know, I, it, a lot of people are going to focus on the testicle eating and all that stuff. And uh, but this th this reader, you know, really liked um, the characters and really I uh, think that Manhunt uh, sings because of, um, you know, the fresh perspective and the characters and how it really, you know, as the dude would say, ties the room together. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, if the characters were not strong in this book, it, it wouldn't work the way that it does. And I think it's most readers aren't even going to notice, you know, how strong and a lot of it, they're, they're going to be so swept up in the story that, you know, <laughs> that the characters are going to be rich in a way that happens so naturally. That's one of the things too, about like when Stephen King writes characters, a lot of times you don't see the things he's doing with the characters because it happens so naturally. Yeah, he's very deft at bringing you to a place where you feel you know someone in just a just a few lines. Yeah, and that's the thing is, um, and I want to say specifically, um, you know, Robbie is a character who uh, I know very well. Um, uh, you know, a, a friend in my life uh, transitioned to mail and um i happened to just be that be his roommate on the the night when the call to the parents and coming out happened and i was in the room for it um and uh specifically robbie was somebody i knew so and um i just you know want to say that robbie's a person i know so and a character that I really related to and, and, and really um, found to be really important to the book. So on that note, um, I want everyone out there, if you made it this far and you're listening, like Manhunt is a book that deserves our support. Um, really look for ways to, I think people should look for ways to, we know there's a lot of haters out there attacking you and we should be looking for ways to support Gretchen in this book um and the most important way you can do it is by reading it and this was an interview that uh, a lot of times i get down into real serious spoilers and i didn't want to do that this time because i wanted to to keep some of the things about the way the story unfolds out there because i really want to this is a case of where i i'm more interested in selling books than breaking down the book for for a small group of people who have already read it and in that regard if you have not read manhunt yet go out there get it um request it at your library is something i think is really important 
Uh, I agree. That's that's my preference is libraries and local bookstores. Um, I got it from the library. I requested it myself. Um, I have a good relationship with my librarian. I've requested a lot of books. And I'm the reason why the that cover is sitting in, in the, the library in San Diego. <laughs> and um, I uh, appreciate uh, everyone who um, has supported this book already and will in the future. Gretchen, uh, any last words for my listeners about Manhunt and what you're doing in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess if I were to, to pick one thing to sign off with, it would be if you found Manhunt gross, you'd better fucking buckle up for the next one. I just turned in the first draft of The Cuckoo, which is a conversion therapy horror story. Wow. And I am starting on Mommy, my third novel right now. Wow. Now, I you've teased Cuckoo uh, uh, on Twitter, and I knew of that, and I... I did not know what it was about, but I did did hear you say buckle up before for that one. And I, I am looking forward to it. Um, Gretchen, this is great. Uh, I love Manhunt. It's a great book. Thank you so much, David. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. No, I really appreciate it. Um, sorry if I talked a lot. I think Oh, a lot, no worries. A lot of times when I get into a book, like I, I get real excited about, you know, like, oh, my God, I got to talk about all this aspect. But. But um, I really, 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 really appreciate the characters in this book. I think they're, they're fantastic. And, that means a lot to me. Yeah, and I really hope uh, everyone gets behind it. And uh, Gretchen, where can they find you online? I am on Twitter at ScumBelievable. And I am on Patreon under my own name, Gretchen Falker Martin. Awesome. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, we'll definitely want to have you back with the next book. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it and I'm going to dig into your historical horror. I, I, I think uh, um, I love historical horrors. So I hope you enjoy it. Well, you know, I, I, do, I, do you have a theory on why it's better in prose than on film? I think on film, they just, you're looking at everything to try and see stuff or. Well, I don't, I don't know. know. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the witch. I really enjoy the devils, like I said earlier. So I, I don't know that I have the same. You don't have the same, same hang up as me on that set of inclinations. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, folks, uh, uh, check Gretchen's work out and thank you for joining us on postcards from a dying world. See ya.